OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensis as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 71. Gosh, that sounds a lot of podcast episodes. Uh, my name is Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Dr Alex King, who discussed his role as a consultant psychologist working in the NHS. If you haven't had a chance yet, do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest uh, today, which is Captain Ken Errington. He'll be discussing his career within the Army and his experience of lung cancer. And we also have the amazing Tara Smith, who works with us on Rad Chat Joiners. So thank you so much, both of you, for being part of the podcast episode today. Good morning. Hello there. So, Ken, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so I was born in Scotland, between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Um, I studied engineering at university, decided that really wasn't for me, so I joined the infantry in the army instead, um, because it's much more interesting. I've deployed to Iraq uh, on a shader to, uh, whilst uh, ISIS was going on. Um, I've then been back to the UK and uh, was medically downgraded um, and have been to the Army Foundation College. I spent two and a half years there a great posting. I then briefly moved to the Infantry Battle School in Brecon um, and then back to uh, where I am now which is the Mission Ready Training Centre um, based near Cambridge. Um, my current role at the moment is I'm the SO3 so I'm in charge of uh, organising and planning exercises to prepare troops to deploy overseas. I'm primarily involved in the deployment to Cyprus um, and also the unconventional warfare aspect which is in its infancy at the moment so I'm helping to develop that. I've also been involved in deployments to Iraq um, again on Op Shader um, and our deployment to Mali uh, which is Op Nukem as well. Um, so I've had a, had a very interesting career. What's unconventional warfare? Um, so it's our new concept um, basically it's to replicate the American Green Berets um, 
but it's very much in its infancy. So we've had three iterations of the exercise that we run and each one has been different. And we're just trying to find our feet with that. Um, but it's, it's an interesting uh, concept um, that, we're, that we're developing. Um, and it's very well resourced. So I get to have lots of fun with stuff. Well, I suppose you've done quite a lot, but what was a normal day like for you? Uh, normal day for me, so in my current role, it's quite uh, polarised, like it is most of the army. So in my future calendar, I'm working every day, including weekends, from the 4th of January to the 26th of March. Um, so sometimes you're extremely busy. I'm, I'm away on um, I'm away on exercise for all that time. Um, and equally, there's the opposite of where I am now, where I have nothing really to deliver. I'm planning those exercises, but that can be done and a, a few hours a day and you're just sending emails to people so it's quite a steady life at the moment but come next year it will be unbelievably hectic um, so I'm enjoying the time while I can but it's uh, an average day is pop into the office send some emails, go to the gym come back to the office, send some more emails and that's pretty much it it's a steady life at the moment Ken, if you feel comfortable, would you mind sharing with us your experience of cancer? Um, yeah, so I, as I mentioned, I was medically downgraded when I came back from uh, from Iraq. That was for a different illness. Um, so I was uh, medically downgraded for that for uh, two years, and I was actually only about a fortnight away from having a medical review board to upgrade me back to fully medically deployable. Um, and I thought that was great because, yes, I'd, I'd lost about a year from my career and I'd missed out on some good jobs that would have been good for my career, but, you know, a year's a year. And in the Army today, people aren't promoting on their first look at major, they're promoting on their fourth or fifth. So as long as I worked hard, I'm sure I'd be able to claw it back. Um, and yeah, a fortnight before that meeting, I was diagnosed with skin cancer because um, I had a mole on the side of my head that kept bleeding. So I went to the doctor and he was very unambiguous that it was melanoma and he took it off the same day, um, which you know was a bit, bit, bit of news for me. Um, the NHS then very quickly got a got the full body uh, scan to identify if it had spread anywhere and it had, it moved to my, my lungs. The melanoma was wrong. The uh, tumor was 10 millimeters across. Um, I immediately went on a new treatment, which I think is quite new, uh, dibrafenib and trimafenib. I'm not sure I pronounced those correctly, but they were extremely effective. And I think in the first four cycles, the tumor had more than halved in size to four millimeters. Um, subsequently, it sort of plateaued. It's staying around four millimeters wide, but crucially, it's not growing. I think it's staying in remission for a while. Um, in terms of how it's affected my life, it's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bold and say it hasn't affected it that much. In terms of being at work, very occasionally I just take take a day or an afternoon to go for a scan or for an appointment, or I have to step out things for a phone call or something like that. But other than that, I, I just do my job. I, sort of, I almost pride myself on just being another platoon commander. Um, so the other guys, the other officers do their job and I just do mine. And yes, every two months or so I have to take an afternoon out, but doesn't really seem to matter. Um, I'd say it hasn't affected me. I think that's because my previous illness that I was diagnosed with um, after Iraq was, I'd say, much more serious. It didn't, it didn't kill me, but it was. Uh, I was in hospital for six months in intensive care units, and uh, they didn't have any idea what was wrong with me for five of those months. They were just very sure that I was going to die fairly soon, 
Um, I had 100% inflammation of the gray matter in my brain. And, you know, I was, I was sort of working week to week. So being told that you've got three to five years was actually, by contrast, not too bad. So I think, I think that softened the blow of being terminally ill. It wasn't that bad after having been bedridden for six months. That's quite a lot to take in, something like that, especially while you've probably just deployed, you know, seen some things, done some things, come back, and then to have that, that must have been quite a lot to take in at the beginning. Um, well, I was uh, very delirious at the beginning. So I, uh, it started with, I, I went on leave after tour, so you get post-operational tour leave, which is like two weeks where you go away and sort of, you know, spend time with family, etc. And about halfway through that, I woke up one morning with very bad room spin. I hadn't been drinking the night before. Um, and they, they said it was an ear infection. I had to go to the hospital. It's like, yes, yeah, an ear infection, you'll be fine. Um, take these pills to balance your inner ear or whatever it was, um, and you'll be fine in six weeks. So I went back to work, and I was sort of uh, day on, day off. I, one day I could function fine. I was on PT. I was doing my job. And then the next day I would be bedridden with the same sort of room spin. Um, and I think everyone at work thought I was I was I was faking it. I was on the on the biff we call it, um, because I was missing important things. And the days I was fine, nothing would be happening. So they thought I was I was faking it, which was not good. Um, but I was sort of trying to persevere because I was still at the start of my career and didn't want to leave a bad impression. Um, but then one day we were about to go on another block of four weeks leave um, because we had just come back from tour and we'd been busy earlier in the year. And I remember. Uh, so we'd done the sort of final meeting in the office, everyone happy, everyone, you know, don't, don't get in trouble while you're away. And I was walking back to the, to my, my room to get in the car and drive home. And I was called back to write a report on someone because, um, he'd been, he'd been missed in the two weeks that we'd been back in work. Um, and I remember walking back into the office and putting my laptop on the table. And then I woke up three days later from the, from a coma, um, in hospital. And I was, I was very out of it. I think I was in quite sort of serene state of there's nothing I can do I don't really understand what's happening so I'll just sort of go along with it and I think that just sort of perpetuated for the next six months and by the time I came out the other side I was relatively well again but the the, the realization of what had happened hadn't really sunk in because I'd just not been fully conscious at the time I think and then it was sort of slowly and slowly appreciated what was wrong but there was nothing I could do with it at that point and I was still going so I didn't didn't really have that sledgehammer effect that it might have done. Ken, what was your diagnosis at that point? Uh, so when I first went down, they had they had no idea. So I had inflammation on the brain, but they couldn't find out what was causing it. Um, and I went to six different hospitals um, across the UK. I had six different neurologists and five different cardiologists. And it was the last one that figured out that it's it was neurosarcoidosis. Um, so I think sarcoidosis is quite common, not in the lungs and in the skin, but I don't think it's very common in the brain. And I think they just uh, discounted that because it was so rare. Um, in fact, there was one point where they sent, because I'd just come back from Iraq, they sent a sample of my spinal fluid to Portland Down, which is the chemical weapons research facility, because they thought I'd come in contact with a bioweapon while I was in Iraq and had some delayed reaction to it. Um, but it was neurosarcoid. And then all it was was a treatment of steroids and it cleaned up very quickly actually so I was very grateful to that doctor who figured it out one thing that absolutely strikes me when you've been telling your experience was the fact that you've got this diagnosis 
um, you know, you've been given your prognosis. And then in the other sentence, you then were saying that you are about to work for an extended period of time with no time off. Kent, what's giving you that impetus to spend your time working, to spend your time dedicating your life to the army? Um, I really enjoy my job. Um, it's just, it's challenging in the, in the, in the right way, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there are, there are long hours and there's obviously aspects that aren't great fun, but you do get a sense of achievement, particularly when I was posted to AFC Harrogate. So AFC Harrogate, uh, Britain is the only country in NATO that recruits at the age of 16. Um, and Harrogate is where you go if you're a 16 year old recruit. You're not allowed to deploy on operations till you're 18, just to caveat that. Um, but you would get these kids who would come in and they'd had extremely challenging backgrounds, you know, lots of domestic abuse, child abuse, etc. And they'd come in having done really badly in school. And then, so I, I was on the short course, which is six months long. Six months later, they go from someone who is on a, on a track to crime, drugs, addiction. And then six months later, they've got a career, they've got life skills, they've got a future, they've got salary because you get paid a thousand pounds a month at the age of 16, which I think makes you, unless your dad's a millionaire, probably the richest 16 year old in the world. Um, but they have, you see that transformation in them and you know, they've, they've got more confident, they're you know, functioning, they, they don't lie all the time, their physical health has improved. And it was very rewarding to watch that transformation from you know, what would, what would have been potentially a burden to, you know, you know, crime, drugs, etc. things to the NHS and whether at the other side they're, they're looking at a 25 year career where they'll end and go into business or something like that. You know, it's, it's quite a, a very rewarding uh, process to watch. Okay, and in the army, um, as a captain, you, you typically move around every two years. Um, so at the minute you're, you've, you're not at Harrogate, you've moved down south. How does that work with them sort of hospital appointments and whatnot do they organize that for you uh no so almost all of my care is on the nhs the army does have specialists that do that but i don't deal with them at all to be honest i'm not seeing them in a while but the nhs has been really good so i'm actually posting out of here to uh warminster um in april i've already uh, warned them off about that um, and they say there shouldn't be an issue um, it was an issue when i moved to wales for four months they moved my care to cardiff and then back um, and they were very, very on board, which was incredible. Um, and it's just been really easy. They made life very easy for me. Um, you know, as soon as you turn up, you have your initial consultation. They get all the information from your previous uh, doctor, and and then you, you're good to go. And it's been they've been extremely, extremely easy. Um, and particularly in Cambridge, you know, I get my blood test done. I can get them done on camp, or I can go to the park and rides for this sort of drive-through bud testing and it's just been incredibly simple and I think if it hadn't been that then it would have been a lot more stressful and a lot more inconvenient of work and then that would have generated further problems but it hasn't been at all it's been uh, it's been really really good um, and remarkably easy how having moved so often that there haven't been more problems. How have you found that since kind of diagnosis going for appointments kind of I know you've mentioned the support briefly from the army being medically downgraded but how, how has that been with your peers who you know you've maybe got to Sandhurst with etc um there haven't haven't really been any issues I mean they're they're all I mean they all know about it here at work because when I evaporate for a day they're like 
where's where's the boss and then you got to give them the answer um but i mean it doesn't really affect the rank that comes back to me just being another platoon commander i mean i, I go on fizz we have fizz twice a week here um and i i, I didn't attend this morning does that mean I, prosecco ken sorry in my mind that going on the fizz means me getting some champagne all oh, right okay uh the fizz is in physical training um so yeah exercise ken, I, I ken that's what morning. joe calls it all oh, right okay <laughs> You'd love a job in the army, wouldn't you? Twice a week, mandatory. Love it, love it. Um, but yeah, I, I go on fizz. I, I don't outrun all the lads, but I'm fitter than some of them. Um, and I think that shows that I'm still. I mean, I do my job. They observe me doing my job, and there, it doesn't it doesn't detract from what I'm doing, so they don't have an issue with it. I was going to say there is a good social life with the army, though, isn't there? There is a lot of. Joe's kind of fizz there as well that you, you can get involved in. Yeah, yes. In fact, there are uh, Christmas balls coming up and I need to not embarrass myself like I did last year. So, Ken, how do you cope psychologically with having cancer and being in the army? Because I would imagine that my perception of the army is that it's very male-dominated lots of bravado you know is it the kind of place that you could break down and go actually I'm having a really bad psychologically today um you know everything you've been through must have been traumatic um you know how do you cope with that day to day um I think I'm of the mindset that you there's there's nothing I can do about it I think this came from being so sick so suddenly with that initial disease was there's nothing you can do about it so, I mean, you can, you know, you can ball and wail, but, you know, it's not going to make a difference other than wasting your own time. So you might as well use the time you've got productively. Equally, my uh, mother died of uh, breast and bone cancer when I was quite young, relatively young. Um, and she was very stoic about the whole thing. Um, I don't think I ever saw her cry once. So I think that left an impression of how it should be done, almost, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, if you, you know, you, you can waste a lot of time and you admittedly haven't got much left. So that's counterintuitive. So just get on with it, is my attitude. I suppose lots of people will have, or hopefully will, can try and have that kind of attitude with um, the kind of the wider family and friends when the diagnosis kind of, obviously when you, if you've shared it with them, when you did share it with them, how did they find the kind of being the bystander to it? Um... I think, again, because of that initial disease where I was so close, they were also like, not again. Um, it was, uh, no, no, it's fine that they were all there, but I think it was, uh, they'd been here before and it wasn't, there was not a lot of crying or anything like that. I think they were used to the concept of me being fairly sick, um, if that makes sense. And how do they find, obviously, you're quite happy sort of moving around. It's part of the job. It's, it's really a lifestyle being in the army. How do your family and friends find it when you sort of, you go away to, you know, you're relocating? Do they, do they worry about you? I don't think so. I think um, I'm a pretty self-reliant kind of guy. Um, and they know that. I think I'll, I'll look after myself. And they, yeah, I'll see them at Christmas and I'll see them in, at summer summer leave. And that's pretty much enough I mean I, I obviously phone them and I'm in touch with them um, but I think that's enough for them 
Do you have any symptoms at the moment, Ken, around your cancer? And do you get support with those from medical teams? Uh, the only real side effect is I get very dry skin sometimes. It's sort of like uh, quite bad eczema, but I've just got a, a steroid-related cream that just sort of cleans it up quite well. Um, at the moment, it's a bit of an issue, but nothing that's going to slow me down. Um, so yeah, there's no, there are no real side effects. The drugs are pretty incredible. And with your physical education, it's almost like prehabilitation, isn't it, around cancer care? You're like the perfect patient making sure you keep up your, uh, your physical <laughs> education. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Is there, I suppose in the military, um, again, as Joe was kind of touching on, that cancer, obviously that it makes you medically, can you discharged or downgraded, etc. But is there sort of more of an open kind of perception or environment where people talk about getting, you know, like, just checked up so t checking for testicular cancer sorry or checking your chest that sort of thing um so the medical center on campus effectively are gp so they do all those annual tests for most people but because i'm so fully involved with the nhs and i get checkups for for that i'm basically i as an individual i'm left to the nhs effectively and um, i think everyone else gets theirs in their annual sort of checkup and things like that and then obviously if you develop something outside of that then you can obviously go to the med center and they've got a lieutenant colonel who's a medical who's a full doctor um, and he can then look at you and refer you back to the nhf if it's something more serious than that that also the same if you're working abroad so obviously you said like cyprus things like that because obviously healthcare abroad is very different in lots of the places where you go sure um so essentially to deploy overseas you would have to pass a medical or you have to be medically fit anyway if you then developed it out there uh, so obviously they don't want to have people coming back unnecessarily but if you do develop something out there there's something called um they'll, they'll put you on an aeromed flight which is essentially an emergency flight that they'll direct in to pick up you as an individual and get you out there and um, depending on the severity of what is, whatever has happened to you so you get casavat essentially from theater and do you think with kind of what you're going through with the diagnosis and treatment side that you might be medically upgraded again uh no um in fact i'm medically downgraded medically non-deployable permanent uh which means that three years after getting that you get discharged so my next posting in warminster will be my last posting and then i will become a civilian again I'm not sure i'm looking forward to it I was going to say, how must that feel? Because your career is obviously really important to you. I think yeah. that's really evident from how you've spoken about working in the army. What What are you going to do? Have you got aspirations to, to do other things once you finish? Um, I've had not a job offer, but a friend of mine who received a job offer um, to work with the UN. So I've worked with the UN in, whilst dealing with Cyprus and in Mali deployments. So I think that'll give me a bit of an edge. I think the UN would be would be very interesting um what quite what i would do i'm not sure but uh it's two years away so i'm going to worry about that later on but the un or i i have got a degree in engineering not a particularly good one but you know it's always there as a safety net <laughs> thing i found is that people don't want their brakes in their car designed by someone who only just passed <laughs> yeah that's a really good point although i don't think i've ever asked my uh 
my mechanics, how good they are. I just, uh, yeah. I just check the bill. That's really <laughs> bad, isn't it? I just check to make sure they're uh, cheap enough for me. <laughs> Unless you get into the safety side, Ken, where they want people to design bad brakes so they can test how bad they are. Yeah. Well, that could be my niche, couldn't it? You know. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it recently published that they always do all the tests on male, male uh, dummies in crash? crash accidents and things there you go ken you could design really yeah, poor brakes that that fail and then yeah just make sure you use crash test dummies oh, that God. are female <laughs> ken have you ever accessed external resources so i'm thinking for our cancer patients that we may see we may advise them to get in contact with macmillan or trekstock or you know charities that offer supportive care um, is that something that you've ever thought about accessing or do you feel that actually the army is able to give you that support that you need at the moment? I think the army gives the support. I, I've not really felt the need for it. I think like my, we're a, a relatively small team here, so I've got six of us on, on my team um, and we're all pretty close. So I think we sort of look out for each other and I'm, I'm always busy, so it stops you thinking about things like that. Um, but I, I was signposted initially uh, to Macmillan and other charities like that, so I, I was aware of the resource. I just didn't really... Ken, do you want to talk a little bit about your treatment pathway? Um, for example, what sort of... Um, are you on any chemotherapy? Uh, yeah, so I'm on uh, two drugs, uh, Dibrafenib and Trimafenib. Not sure that's how you pronounce them, but the, I think that's how you pronounce them. Um, they've been extremely effective. Um, they did have side effects at the start, so I think the first week that I took them, I ended up back in hospital with a uh, temperature of 40 degrees and blood oxygen saturation of 82. Um, and that's happened two or three times since. But aside from those little episodes, which are fairly unpleasant, but not, you know, not a showstopper, and the eczema on my skin, I think I've been very lucky with the side effects because um, there are quite a long list of things that can go wrong, which don't sound very fun, but I've dodged those bullets. Um, I'm also being treated for, so my initial disease, the neurosarcoid, I suffered from heart failure. So they've got me on uh, beta blockers um, just to support that. I think one of the side effects of my chemo drugs is that they can affect your heart. So they've got me on beta blockers. They've continued the treatment for beta blockers just to keep safe there. Um, yeah, other than that, there's been no change. They're working. I'm still in remission, so I'm not complaining. How often are you having follow-ups? So I suppose imaging and things like that. Um, I got a scan. I get a scan every six months. I don't think I've got an appointment for my next one. Um, in terms of cardiology, I, again, I think it's a scan every four months. Um, but I think my my cardiologist is getting. He's just a bit too keen, to be honest. But there you go. I know that that's not um, interferes with your social life because um, at the Army Navy you, uh, you 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 dropped out for a scan and you came straight back, didn't you? I did, yeah. Hundred quid for a taxi, but you know, didn't want to miss the scan. That's dedication, that is, Ken. But you... yeah, I got back just after the match finished as well. Which is <laughs> it's the time for the real drinking to start. It was amazing, really, because we were outside Twickenham. You can imagine thousands of people, and just suddenly we bumped into Ken. <laughs> of all the people I don't know how we managed to find you there because like you say you, you yeah. just came back in a taxi and then we went back out didn't we yeah don't don't let it ruin a good night and it was a good night so worth it 
Also, I'm pretty sure you're not meant to drink on these drugs, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> we'll gloss over that though. Let's just maybe yeah. not send the podcast episode to the your uh, oncologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't I think uh, my current one's actually met me. Most of my interactions have been by phone call, but there you go. So, Ken, is there anything that you think the army could do better to support patients who are maybe diagnosed with cancer or potentially other illnesses? Um, I think is I think I've been very lucky with my uh, immediate bosses and my commanding officers whilst I've been in the whilst I've been diagnosed they've been extremely forgiving I can see another world where they're not and it becomes a pretty serious problem where you're moving things around to get to appointments um, but my appointments are fairly uh, well dispersed so it's not like a major issue and I, I would literally send them a whatsapp you know I'm taking tomorrow off for this reason they'd be like yes and that would be the last of it so I think I've been Lucky, I don't think there would be many bosses who would take an issue with it, but I can see where that could become a problem. Um, that would, I would imagine that be the exception rather than the rule. In terms of medical treatment, um, they you would you would go and see an army specialist um, or a military specialist reference oncology, but I'm being treated by specialists in their field anyway, so they've not seen the need to get their own evidence. If that makes sense. So they just get a copy of my medical records from the NHS, and that that keeps them content. So I don't think I don't think there's a. I suppose it would depend on your condition. If you were, I'm functioning at quite a high level. Like I go on fizz and I go to work every day and things like that. I think if you were medically sick, they would probably move to discharge you quickly to get you out and get you into the the care that you require. But I don't think you would be able to fulfil your role within the army if you were not in remission or in a, in a healthy state um, yeah I think they've done a very they've done very well by me um, I'm more than happy with what they've how they have supported me so I, I have no issues with how they've helped and that, that's really great to hear as well because there are people that I come across within clinics who don't have supportive employers um, who've kind of run out of sick pay and then that's it they've lost their job I think through COVID as well lots of patients once they got the cancer diagnosis and um, you know the company couldn't apply for enough furlough for them they were they lost their jobs so that's quite good to hear it and obviously you've got a process of as you said going back into out you know out of the army but then becoming a civilian um, and I know you talked about the UN so I suppose just a quick kind of question around that that having now been through you know, the cancer pathway and things like that if you got involved with the UN there are lots of countries in the world that have no cancer care whatsoever like it's not existent. People die at the border trying to go somewhere else to get cancer treatment. Do you think that might be? I don't, I don't know how the UN works um, in this sort of field, but I don't know if that's something that might be a passion for you to try and look at. Um, I think as long as my treatment remains the same, I would probably just get a stockpile of however many months I was planning to be away for and keep that to myself and just live off of that. Because my treatment doesn't require support, I just take the pills every day at the right time and then I'm good to go. So as long as they're physically there, I think that would be my solution um, to that problem. Equally, I mean, I could get posted to New York. That would be all right if I could get posted to New York. Um, then I'm sure there's care there that would be uh, equal to what I'm getting at the moment. 
And Ken, at the end of all of our podcast episodes, we always ask our guests if they have any top tips. So we have a really broad range of listeners um, from patients, healthcare professionals, um, people external but are interested in oncology. Is there any top tips that you would give our audience? Um, yes, I would say it's, uh, it's pretty shit, but it's already happened. And so you've got, only got to make the best of the time you've got left. Perfect. Oh, thank you so much, Ken, for joining us. Really interesting. Really interesting to see um, kind of what you do within the army, but also just how you're being looked after and supported in your role. So a huge thank you to our guest, Captain uh, Ken Errington. Thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Joe McNamara, Norman Jock Anderson and Tara Smith. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Holly Roberts, who'll be talking about her son Larson and Larson's Pride charity. Thank you all so much for listening.